This episode was recorded on the lands of the Peramank people. We honour their elders past, present and emerging, and we celebrate their rich traditions and thank them for allowing us to share our stories on these, their glorious lands. Hello, and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I'm your host, Savas Savas. For a quarter of a century, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences for some of Australia's most extravagant and intimate soirees. Food connects us. It connects us to people, to places and to moments in time. These memories shape who we are and what we value. So come and break bread with my guests and I as they share their food memories, revealing far more about themselves than what they've tasted. Anyone who has produced an interview-style program such as this will know that the hassle is in the hustle of lining up guests. So when Laura, our editor, volunteered her husband, I jumped at the chance to speak to the man known to musicians as the Scotsman with the loud laugh and big tuba. Russell Torrance is the host of ABC's Classic Breakfast program. He is a musician and an award-winning radio producer who also composed the score for this podcast. Born in Scotland, Russell spent his formative years in Manchester with his parents and three younger sisters. Torrance's family life was devoted to listening to, learning about and performing music. There were times when music could play second fiddle to the family's love of food. However, more often than not, food and music came together for them like a musical ensemble. On writing the music for our podcast, Russell says the brief was to do with the emotional human connection we have with food. It immediately made me think of my parents and sisters and specifically family holidays we had in France. The choppy rhythm under the music is the audio from an old VHS recording of us on holiday. It's the sound of laughter, togetherness and love. I hope you like it. I, Russell, we do, we do like it. Here with My Blether, with the Bonnie Lad, recorded at his home in the Adelaide Hills. And I, too, hope you like it. So, Russ, thank you for having me in the meth lab. But we won't... <laughs> That's what it's like, isn't it? If only I had the money. <laughs> imagine, imagine what you could make from in here. But it makes <laughs> such a beautiful. So, do you, just to give a, a bit of perspective of where I am, I'm somewhere in the Adelaide Hills, near a factory that used to make Australian woolen blankets. Yes. So you can go out and do your homework there. <laughs> and I'm in this five. So this is like a plywood clad building with cushions and, and sponges and fabric. It's so classic. It's like the 90s never happened in here. <laughs> never did. And we're recording. And I'm, I'm really grateful to be here in your home. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Tell us a little bit about what you do at the ABC. Absolutely. I'm lucky enough to present Classic Breakfast on ABC Classic. So it's on weekdays from 6 till 10. And it's just such a wonderful thing to do. I... I often pinch myself. You know, I could not think of a job that I would rather do. I've lived my whole life with music. I have played the piano from age five. I played in bands and orchestras as a teenager. All my social life growing up was around music. In fact, I remember taking a step away from performing music as an amateur when I was in my 20s and trying to figure out how things worked in the real world. <laughs> you know, how, how do you pick up girls who aren't in your orchestra? How do you, <laughs> what's, how do you organise to go to the pub if it's not after a rehearsal? <laughs> well, who was doing the programme before you? Before me, um, it was a guy called Philip Samets. He was doing it for a while. And then Emma Ayers was doing it. That, um, she's now Ed LeBrock. And uh, there's a whole host of people who have done it for years and years and years. But I was lucky enough just to be there at the right time when they were looking for a change. What has it morphed into since you've taken it over? From where to where? What's the journey of the show to yeah. where it is now? I think the show has morphed alongside the station and alongside a perception of what classical music is, and what and what orchestral music is. And we we've managed to get a younger audience. We've managed to rekindle an interest in going to to orchestras and 
and to, to listening to classical music. We recently did a big campaign around film and screen music, and and that was a great example of how much we've we've come because ABC Classic used to be quite staid. It's always been a wonderful station, but it always used to really take its lead from BBC Radio Three in the UK and be quite you know, conservative and et cetera, et cetera. And we, we still maintain the quality that we always did, but we do it in a more approachable way. I'm really lucky to have been part of the team to that's helped make the, that come about and to to make it friendly a place to be for listeners. What from you do you take to the show? I, I funnily, funnily enough, I, I think I'm one of those people who loves music but wants a change in the image of how it's seen and how classical music is seen. Most people out there see classical music and immediately think of a bust of a composer or a guy in a wig or something to do with dusty, um, you know, aristocracy (laughs) in the 18th century. And that's not how I see it. I mean, that's a big part of the heritage. But um, I I see the vibrancy of 20th century music, the, the great scene that we have now. I mean, we have so many composers in Australia writing fantastic music music that's listenable to and it's not it, it's challenging but it's not so challenging that it leaves you behind it's good music that's showing the way forward the audience engagement inspires you drives you to of course yeah and the potential that's there is amazing so the world is changing yeah so the music scene is changing your show is 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 produced is made in a quite a it's a very interesting way an important part of radio is that as far as the listener's concerned, it's me um, playing the music I've chosen and sharing a moment with a listener. Because when you listen to the radio, you tend to listen on your own. So it's a very intimate medium. You, it's the same with podcasts, mm-hmm. but it's a very intimate medium. Um, you listen to the radio, and as far as you're concerned, it's just you and the person presenting, and they're sharing, they're sharing their music with you. And I want the experience to be a bit like, you know when you've had a couple of wines and... And you, oh no! You no. Ju- no, you don't. You don't do that. Do I you? don't do wine. You don't. Yeah, <laughs> and you maybe and you start talking about music and you end up on YouTube and you're like, no, listen to this. No, listen to this. Here's an. Oh, that reminds me of this. This is a good one. That's what I want the experience to be like to listen to my show. I want that that enthusiasm to to come across and the the listeners can share with me as well with social media on our text line having said that the music is actually chosen by a fantastic team that we have we've got an excellent team that that choose in human in a human way by hand all the music that we play how Um, many people work on the show well including myself three really but we have a team of, of music specialists who program the music for most of the station and so it's one of them that I'm lucky enough to work with and she programs the music and then I have another producer who helps me with some of the non-musical content. So if there's an interview or if there's, uh, you know, for example, um, on Monday mornings I like answering people's questions about classical music, you know, particularly people who are new to classical music. And so they ask a question about classical music and I answer it and I make a, a short feature, four or five minutes. So the producer helps me do that. It's a great team. Where did your interest in um, classical music come from? From a young age. Um, my grandfather, who I only knew for a couple of years, he died when I was two, um, had loved classical music. This is my maternal grandfather. Um, and I didn't notice at the time I was two. <laughs> you yeah. know, but he loved Sibelius and he loved Wagner, actually. But I'll forgive him for that. Um <laughs> So I had that legacy inherited from him through my mum. And this music was always around. We are always listening to it on the radio or in the car. There was this terrible thing called Hooked on Classics. I do remember that. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who who was that? It was this guy called Louis Clark. I don't know whether he's American or British, but he... The idea was, if you don't know, the idea was to like take snippets of classical music and tie them together. It was played by an orchestra, yeah. But it had like a funny beat in the yeah, background, yeah, like yeah. a clap. I remember, I remember the records. Did yeah, you have yeah. Records that were. It was like a big neon light correct, on the front. Correct, yeah. correct. And that was a link back to that sort of stuff. So you had a, you had an interesting childhood in that you're born in Scotland, mm-hmm. and then, and then moved to Manchester. Um, aged 11 and that's when things really took off because there'd always been a lot of music in the house we had piano lessons 
and my parents are both very into amateur dramatics. I mean, that's really how they met at school. They were both doing Gilbert and Sullivan productions together. And my mum particularly was really into it and continued to do that when I was a small boy. You know, and all the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals and things like that were part of my life. But then moving to Manchester, I was very, very lucky that we lived in a place called Stockport in the south of Manchester that in those days had an excellent music programme in public schools, you know, government schools. So basically, if you wanted to learn music, the the local authority would provide you with an instrument. And some of the kids wow. had no money, so they'd provide you with an instrument so that you could play. Um, there was lessons, and the school that I went to, which was just a normal, comprehensive school, and really rough around the edges, had a brass band, an orchestra, and a choir, and this god-awful uh, music teacher, <laughs> the most deplorable person. But that's what that's what got me hooked, the, the experience of playing in an ensemble. So I there's think. four children in your family. There is, Let's yeah. talk a little bit about them. Well, there were, well, we're all quite spaced out, really. My my eldest, so I'm the oldest, and then there's Helen, who's two and a half years younger than me, and then Kath, who's six and a half years younger than me, and then Heather, who's 12 and a half years younger than me. What was it like living with three sisters? It was wonderful. They're the best people in the world, apart from... Lauren, who my wife, who took to them like a duck to water, and she considers them to be her family, and it's the best thing. But my sisters are, are just terrific people. What's their involvement with music? Well, they're, they're very musical too. I mean, um, so one, one of the reasons it was difficult for my parents to keep us all going musically was the fact that my I played the tuba because I wanted to and my sister played the tuba as well so we had two tubas <laughs> and so driving around with two tubas in the back of the car and the, the, the garage in the house with <laughs> these two tubas in it um, so my sister ended up was a music teacher for a while she now teaches kids with autism but she's um, she was in a, um, she, she did music at university the same as I did um, Kath plays flute and played cello for a bit and Heather loves music hasn't really done it seriously but loves music and loves listening to music so we're all very musical it's it's just so hard to imagine life without it like i was saying at the beginning it's been so much of the fabric of life is the business of playing and rehearsing music and enjoying it and in the extended family too my godparents um have three sons and they're very musical too so and we didn't get to see them too often because they grew up in the Hebrides and we were in central Scotland and geographically only about 50 miles apart but it's such a rigmarole to get <laughs> it really is driving around mountains and lochs and everything so we maybe saw them twice a year and my memories of the moment when they came bursting in through the door and there's that that joy of getting together again within minutes somebody would be bashing away at the piano and it would just be resounding throughout the house and that's, that joy was linked with the sound of the piano. Speaking of linking, there's a lot of music in the family but there's also a lot of food in the family. There is! So let's get on to those food memories. <laughs> I know. Number one. No, I really struggled, Sava. My family, the greatest joy is all getting together around a table. And I know that sounds like a truism because it's the same for so many people but... There's no, there's no greater high point in life when we're all around the table enjoying food. And food's always been a huge part of family life in one way or another. And the relationship to food has changed as we've grown and developed as a family. I mean, some, some friends of mine go back to see their parents and things are exactly the same as they are when they grew up and they have the same things for tea and etc you know, and that's, that's the experience of going back to the family home. It's not like that for me. My, my, parents have always been keen to find new things and to to change and develop a way of living and that includes their approach to food so there's there's quite a few different things to go through but um do you think your sisters would have the same point of view on that as you do yeah i think so yeah absolutely we have this shared kind of belief in the meal and the family and the, the food and the joy of cooking as well the joy of being in the kitchen is I'm always drawn to the kitchen if I have a rough day or I feel a bit depressed. I'm I'm in the kitchen and I'm making something, particularly if it's an old family recipe. I'll get on to my first food memory yes, in a moment, please. I promise. But my <laughs> my most one of my most treasured possessions is a family recipe book um, that my mum wrote out for me. So when my gran and my last gran was nearing the end of her life, my sister got her recipe book of handwritten recipes, and it's all these bits of places 
things stuck in and um, my mum copied a lot of them out and copied out a lot of her family recipes too into this handwritten recipe book so I've got them there and it's such a wonderful thing to have because these recipes come from people who've not been around for 30 or in some places like 60 years I've done a cookbook like that for with a friend of mine yeah. of her grandparents and you can you can get those recipes anywhere if you do a little bit of research and I'm not playing down the recipe of the particular family member but what I found that we were capturing was the memory of that person well that's it yeah and and what I was going to say is it feels like they are there with you yeah because these recipes were such an essence of who they were and you know that some of them were done on a typewriter some of them were done <laughs> um written by hand yeah. and just having to translate them it was like I we we were compressing a life yeah Onto, you know, into century gothic <laughs> 10 point, you know, it was really difficult. Yeah. It's funny, the translation process was funny because a lot of the recipes were written down and the measurements were honfies, a handful. Oh. Tell me again. A honfie, a handful. Is that so, a Scottish? Yeah, it's just a Scottish word for a handful. There's so a handful of salt. There's the right. Aunt May's recipes were like a honfie of, you know, flour and two honfies of sugar. And so mum... I would have been scunnered after I... <laughs> I know some mum meticulously kind of estimated roughly how what much they were in weight. Anyway, so look, we're, I suppose we're, the first food memory of me for me is that those recipes that came from my grandparents and my great grandparents. My my both of my grandmothers were great bakers, and this is a great thing about Scottish um, food and Scottish family life is baking. And you know, lots of people bake scones and things like that, but there was a lot of baking going on in Scottish households in the middle of the 20th century. I mean, we had, um, and there's all these particular Scottish recipes that exist, like um, a particular type of scone that's not like a, it's not like a, an English scone, it's not like the thing you have with, with cream and jam. It's, um, we call it a soda scone. It's similar to Irish soda bread. Yeah. And, and it's cooked on a hot griddle. Yeah. And my my gran actually had um, a special griddle that was plum that was plumbed into the gas. So you put it on top of your stovetop, but you had a pipe on the side that plumbed into the gas, and it was a special gas pipe to to get this hot plate hot to cook these scones. What would you serve with them? Well, a scone, anything you like. So this is the thing about it; it's very versatile. So it's got sugar in it, but salt too. So it you can have it with jam or, um, or cheese. I mean, um, a favorite of my mum's is to have a scone with melted cheese on it like under the grill how did it go for you because you have a cheese I version. do have a cheese phobia tell us about those cheese phobias I don't know where it comes from and it's funny because my son at nearly three turns out he doesn't like cheese either without without any um, influence from me I, I do love cheese um, most cheese apart from blue vein cheese but I, it, when it's melted I really cannot take it and so stringy pizza cheese? Uh, Come on, I'm going to have a piece of pizza uh, in front of you. Well, the mozzarella's okay because it doesn't have much of an, an aroma, really, but it's the it's the oils and smells that are released from cheddar or parmesan turn my stomach. And it's terrible because I see myself as being somebody who loves all these things, but it's such a... It, maybe it's something I just need to get over. <laughs> I don't know if you can. I mean, do you know what? We, at work, we, we use, I mean, we are, a, with our recipes at work, we have this particular signature canapé, which is balsamic glazed figs with prosciutto crudo. Oh, yeah. And then we do it with a gorgonzola. So it's quite a classical mm. thing, but we love the gorgonzola. It's a sweet gorgonzola, gelato gorgonzola, but what we do is we fold mascarpone cheese through it. Oh, yeah. So it knocks it back. So you still have that, you still get salty. that, you still get that salty and a bit of the sweet because it's a, a sweeter cheese. You see, um, I love the sound of that, but I just, and I love intellectually, I love the idea of that. And if you put that in front of me now, look, I don't eat meat, so take the prosciutto out. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I but, put a walnut in there for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can but, eat this kind of. I'd flip that out, but intellectually, I think that's lovely, and I understand how the flavors go together. You've got the sweetness of the the fig, the the creaminess of the mascarpone, and the texture of it, and the and that sharp saltiness of the the gorgonzola. But then in the in the reality of it, <laughs> would be like, oh no! After leave the table. So why why do you think baking was such a big thing in twentieth century Scotland? Um, economics is a big part to play, I think. And you know, the interwar years, years and the post-war years, people had to do that to to look after themselves and their families. But 
but it's just a tradition in Scotland to have all these recipes and to have baking and and to always have something to give to guests. It's an economical way of putting on a real display for people. Wow. You know? Well, there's labour in it, isn't there? It's there time. Is, and there's love in it. Mm. But it's just what you do. And the smell of them. Whenever I make anything where I put something that has flour on it onto a hot plate, I'm instantly transported into my grand's kitchen. Because that's the smell of making these scones on the on the hot plate is the just the, the flour searing on the on the hot plate. You have a very affectionate relationship with food, don't you? I, well, I, I do. And like, like we've touched upon, for me, it's, it's the connection to those people and to, those, to the love that they've, they continue to show me through their recipes. Did the Grands live close by? Yes. So they all lived um, in a place called Wishaw, which is in just to the southeast of Glasgow, near Motherwell. So that's where, that's where they were. Um, and on my dad's side, she was a great baker too. So the, the scones really come from my mum's side. And her, her great-grandfather was a confectioner. Um, yes, tell us. Well, he, um, he ended up, like so many people, having to leave his family behind and emigrate to Canada, I think in the 1930s, just because there was no work in Scotland. And he lived in Winnipeg, I think, for 20 years as a confectioner making, making Scottish recipes. <laughs> so describe what a confectioner in the uh, 30s did. Well, as my understanding is that he made all those baked goods like the scones and pancakes. He could, he could make pancakes with his hands. You know, like th- those little drop pikelet blini things. Yeah. I would, I and you'd probably do the same. You'd get a nice mixture and then you'd spoon it onto the the hot plate. He would get it in his hand and squish it out and squish it out and do that. A humphy. A humphy. A humphy. Maybe that's how we just said it as a well. A humphy of better. <laughs> right. He'd get it and he'd squish it. He'd Wrap his thumb around his top pointy That's finger. That's it. So you've got you've got a fist, and the the mixture's coming out the top of the fist, and and as you squeeze it out, you you flick it off with the finger from the other hand. Um, and that's how you create these perfect little. That's how he created those perfect little rounded pikelets, those pancakes. So the 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 Scottish and the Cypriots must be, and the Greeks must be um, related way back because <laughs> that's how my grandmother would make look mothers the sweet. Oh. Little donut, um, the sweet little holes of the donut that she would do, and then she would flick. She would do exactly the same with the batter. Put the batter in her hand, squish it, and then just flick it out into the hot oil straight away. Gosh. And they were perfect balls, one after the other, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> and then she'd take it out and then dry it out on the on the drying rack. Wonderful. Same sort of thing. You see, that's it. It's just, it's uh, that's what he did, and he was in Canada for a long time. And he would send money back home. He would. He was in Canada for, I think, 25 years. And then and then suddenly appeared back in the 1950s, I think, when my mum was a little girl. Um, so that's what he did. And so the that style, that the scones comes down my mum's side of the family. On my dad's side of the family, my gran was an excellent baker too. But her, her amazing skill was pastry. She made, I've never tasted pastry like it. She used um, something you can't get in Australia. She used vegetable shortening. So it was a product called Trex that you can still get in the UK, but it's it's kind of white, and I suppose it's homogenized vegetable oil. So that's what she used for her pastry instead of butter. Because can, it was cheaper. I it was meant, probably cheaper, yeah. but it gives you a different texture. It's a much flakier, drier texture. What was fresh produce like in Scotland growing up? <laughs> it was fine, I mean, but it was seasonal. So I, I grew up in the Clyde Valley, um, which was a fruit growing area. And it's funny, we're in the Adelaide Hills. It really reminds me of it mm. around here. So where I grew up, you you could get beautiful plums, the most amazing tomatoes, which I still haven't. Even in Australia, the tomatoes don't match up as far as I'm concerned. Um, raspberries, things like that, but seasonal. So, you know, it was the joy of getting to May or June and having local strawberries uh, getting to June and having the local potatoes from Ayrshire, from the Ayrshire coast. What happened when the um, the supermarket spread like wildfire and everything well, was available? It was interesting. This happened when I was growing up. So when I was younger, the, it was quite limited in what you could get. And in fact, if my gran prepared peas, they'd be dried peas. They would be what she called marrowfat peas, almost like chickpeas that yeah. she would have to reconstitute and, and cook. But 
the, with the growth of the supermarkets came a bit of a renaissance. And that was around, the, I think it must have been about the mid to late 80s. And we had supermarkets, but they had a very limited supply. And if we had cooked anything with garlic, it came from a squeezy tube. Wow. The garlic. Yeah. And parmesan came from a cardboard, you know, those cardboard <laughs> tubes of parmesan. Was that, um, was that a culture shock? Yeah, it was. And it's, it's funny because there's a lot of people of Italian descent in that part of Scotland. Um, a lot of people who were made prisoner of war during World War Two ended up loving it and staying there. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. You get an idea of how they were treated by the Scots, so they wanted to actually really stay well. there. So in Glasgow and Edinburgh, there's lots of Italians. I remember going into an Italian restaurant in Glasgow as a wee boy for the first time, West George Street. You walk down the stairs and just being overwhelmed by the, the smell of olive oil and garlic. Because you can, I don't think you could buy olive oil in the supermarket when I was growing up, you, you could get it from a chemist shop because it was seen as a pharmaceutical. Ah. <laughs> and so these baking grandmothers, how much of this change did they see from post-war um, into the age of the supermarket? Um, well, my maternal grandmother died in the mid-80s, so she didn't see any of it. And her, her, her you know, culinary tastes, apart from her incredible baking, her culinary tastes were were limited, <laughs> you know, it was egg and chips and, uh -huh. and things like that. Beautifully cooked and with great love, but that that was it. My paternal grandmother, however, she only died in 2012. So she she actually was there for that change. And I remember we, we were on holiday in France and she tried President, you know, President Butter? Yes. President yeah, Butter. Yeah. And loved it so much, she actually got them to order it in, in her local supermarket. And she was always wanting to cook with olive oil and garlic even though she hadn't done that when she was growing up and bringing up a family did they both bake to the end of their lives um yes they did it was just what they did my paternal grandmother who died most recently died um she declined with dementia and i think one of the saddest things was when she wasn't she realized she wasn't able to do that anymore that was one of the the saddest things because she just loved it it was just what you did it was it was part of how you felt you were contributing to your society and you know, and the church would always have a fete or a jumble sale and, and they would always, they called it a sale of work in Scotland. And we've got a sale of work and people would make food and, and it would be sold to raise funds for the church. And hers would always sell before it opened. Wow. So everybody else, were, everybody else, <laughs> yes, everybody else that was there setting up their stall would go and buy all her stuff before anybody else had a chance. She made this pineapple tart so it's an individual pineapple tart. It was with this Swiss tart pastry that was made with the vegetable shortening. Had pineapple jam, um, buttercream, and then a, a glaze on the top, a yellow icing glaze. And they're just, they were extraordinary. They were extraordinary. And the people would fight over them. <laughs> where, where, where did the pineapple come from? Oh, the pineapple was a jam. It was a, it jam. Was a jam, pineapple. Yeah. So, so you bought the jam. <laughs> And it was Hartley's pineapple jam. She always had to try and get us to buy it whenever we were somewhere that sold it. How were your, your school friends and the children in the neighbourhood, how did they view you as a family, a musical cooking family? Or did they have the same? <laughs> I don't know. So it was kind of sounds like I made you sound like the Von Trapp family. Well, well look, in, in Scotland... Were, were you a unique family to suppose, the area? I suppose we must have been. Look, in Scotland, I suppose we were viewed with suspicion. And a bit of derision because we were we were kind of like I don't like talking in terms of class, but we were middle class. You know, my, my dad was professional, my mum was a teacher, and we, we owned our own home. Whereas a lot of the people around us were in council houses, um and I suppose we're we, we I suppose we were seen as being a bit spoiled, but we weren't really. We absolutely weren't. But and back in those days in Scotland, I don't think people knew the musical side of us because we weren't doing that yet. It was when we moved to Manchester, and then all our friends were were in doing the music anyway, you know. And our neighbours, I think people liked it. People and one of the things I noticed even at eleven moving to Manchester was how much more gregarious people were there. You know, people are much more outgoing and so less oppression in Manchester. I think so. Cultural yeah. oppression. I, mean, I think I think you were freer to express yourself. And I think people liked the fact that we did. When friends and family came over, there was always music in the house. We didn't put on concerts, but the piano was always cranking and, and stuff like that. So all that, let's call it bullying in Scotland, it wasn't enough to clip your wings, was it? You just kept 
flying. I suppose so. As a family, as a as a musical so. cooking I family. I don't think we were. I don't think we were bullied. I mean, maybe I was just a little bit, but that's what happens to. To, to everybody, but the did sport feature at all anywhere? No, this is the thing. Yay! Sorry, <laughs> sorry sport. That's another sport. thing that's two does apart. So where I grew up in Scotland, soccer is the religion, it, and it literally is because I mean it marks you as being Protestant or Catholic, depending mm. on whether mm. you support Rangers or Celtic. Um, but we didn't we didn't play soccer as growing up. My dad didn't kick the ball around with us. He wasn't interested in that either. And I suppose it was. Um, it was a bit of a blessing because it meant that we didn't have to pretend to be one, you know, do all that Protestant Catholic thing. I mean, in Scotland, the schools are segregated between the Catholic school and everybody else. And it was always something that was fascinating to me and seemed a bit stupid. <laughs> you know, and I don't want to denigrate anybody from a Catholic background and about the necessity for Catholic education or whatever you want. But I had friends that I played with on my street that didn't go to my school. Like, why didn't you go to my school, you know? Or I went to Boys Brigade, but they, they couldn't come to Boys Brigade because they were Catholic, and Boys Brigade was a Protestant church quasi-military. <laughs> so, Hitler Youth. <laughs> gosh, my, my grandpa could hear you, he'd slap you. <laughs> what does Scotland look like these days? I don't know. I live in Australia. I, I've not lived in Scotland since 1988. I... I have an idea of what I want it to look like. I I want it to be a, a small country rebuilding who it is in the world because Scotland has a proud history and Scotland has a proud series of achievements. Um, uh, Scots have done so much for the world. We've invented the television, the telephone, the you know penicillin. I mean, where would we be without these three for a start? Uh, yeah. The pneumatic tire, the bicycle and so on um, and so Scotland now I, I would like to think it's somewhere that is gaining a bit of self-confidence after those years of I, I don't want to call it oppression because I don't want to jump on that boat but but it was hard in, in the middle of the 20th century to be controlled and given no autonomy from London um, and to have in communities decimated when steelworks or mines or whatever were closed without any thought about what was going to happen afterwards. So I think Scotland now is somewhere that's gaining self-confidence, that, that loves who it is, that um, celebrates its past, but is looking forward to the future. I mean, there's a big move in Scotland to rejoin the European Union um, as an independent country. And I've got, mixed, I've got mixed views about that, but it is a sign of this self-confidence and this moving to the future. When you take, when you eventually have the opportunity to take your son back to Scotland, what will be one of the first things that you'll oh, take gosh. him to or show him? I have to say, it would be to get, to go and get proper fish and chips, because <laughs> the the way that ch you get chips from the chippy in Scotland is different from here. The our chips in Australia, I the water a little bit. <laughs> That's really it? sweet. Yeah. Um, I, in Australia, our chips are. You, you're crying because you love chips so much? No, I'm just that beautiful <laughs> little thing of you as a, you know, mid-40s taking your son and uh, just opening up that paper and just, and then it's not, I mean, he's right there in the moment, but that you are transported back to when you were his age. I would, yeah, and I, I mean, I'm trying to hold myself back too because the thought of introducing to him to all these things and such an important part of his heritage is something that's a big, a big thing for me. Particularly, here we are, it's now 2022, and I've not seen my family for a while, and yeah, it's a big deal, but the, the chips in Scotland, here we have excellent chips in Australia, but they're they're crispy on the outside. Um, in Scotland, they tend to be more, they're hand-cut, and they tend to be, they're soggier, but that's not a very ingratiating term. They're just, they're just nice, and they're just, I want to introduce him to that, and I want to introduce him to the the pleasure of going into Glasgow and wandering around the streets and going in, wandering through the Italian quarter in Glasgow and smelling the garlic coming out of the restaurants and the and the the pride in um, the multiculturalism of Glasgow. Like if you again going into a fish and chip shop in Glasgow, one of the favourites is pakoras. Oh, Indian, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. You've, you've had a, 
a heavy night in the pub and you get a, a bag of pakoras on the way home the great western road and that's what Only you do pakora. they blow your head off <laughs> yeah. uh, you know they're the real deal and and there's all these other items of scottish cuisine that i'm looking forward to introducing him to that i don't eat anymore sadly because i i, I don't eat meat but there's a particular sausage you get in scotland we call it a lorn sausage or a square sausage so it doesn't have a skin on it it's not in a casing and it's quite a a rough texture made of beef and pork i think and but it's spicy so a lot of people who haven't tasted scottish food are surprised when they learn that it's spicy scottish food a lot of coriander and mace and black and white pepper used in scottish food and that's one of the flavors of haggis is that spice that spice blend but this sausage has got it in it and it's just magical so you, you sl it comes in a block and you get get it sliced and so it's a similar shape to a hamburger maybe and you grill or fry it and have it on a roll with some sauce and that's just magic i'm looking forward to him trying that do you have a sense of i don't want to say the word responsibility because it's very heavy to main well let's call it you know let's call it what it is do you have a sense of responsibility the traditions of your family to ensure that you carry on these traditions or create new food traditions with your son? It's interesting you talk about it as a sense of responsibility. And yeah, the, maybe there is the part of that. But I don't want to impose anything on him. What I do want to do is somehow create a situation where he can gain the same pleasure from all of this and the great the same significance from it than I that I have had in my life. And it'll be different for him because he's not spending two or three days a week in his grand's kitchen <laughs> you know yeah. Um, yeah. smelling those scones being made he's not but i hope that he has that same sense of his culinary heritage and that that pleasure of of those things that are different and that are yours and that belong to your heritage it's funny we gave him a scottish name that's to do with glasgow as well just to tie him to those roots and it's not something i'll ever hold him to but i just hope he discovers it and for your second food memory, Ross? Well, what a, one of the... Th I mentioned meat. One of the things that has happened to me in my life is I've given up eating it. <laughs> and it's really funny because I always loved meat. I mean, I mentioned a lot of the Scottish cuisine that we've, we've talked about. A lot of it's to do with meat. And also in Wisha, where my parents grew up, there's a fantastic butcher who makes steak pie, and steak pie is something that a lot of Scottish people will know and love. It um, tends to be skirt or something like that, cooked for a long time in a thick, spicy gravy. Again, it's got pepper, coriander, and there might be a couple of beef sausages in there too, and it has a puff pastry top, and the pastry will be made with beef dripping. And it's the, this particular butcher just makes the best oh they're so good they, they blow your head off and i have to say i mean not putting anybody's nose out of joy but the best beef in the world comes from scotland i mean it's there in the name the angus the angus beef cattle and scottish butchers are immaculate the the smell you get when you walk into a butcher's shop reminds me of scotland was there sawdust on the on the ground no there wasn't we the first saw, time i yeah. saw that was in england actually they're just immaculate these butchers and just great pride taken into everything that was there from you know the finest ribs to the sausages that were all made on site to the the pies so that so this is all part of my heritage and growing up in my 20s i i really enjoyed cooking meat and it's something i get from my dad he's an expert at cooking meat but i just i just gave up meat when just before i turned 40 i i, I think it'd been a gradual process i've been gradually more aware of the the ethical concerns around it um, but I moved um, I moved in with Lauren and she doesn't eat meat and she never put any pressure on me to 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 give up meat but I just thought I'm going to try this I'm just going to try not eating meat because I'd been disappointed by the meat I'd bought you know here in Australia yeah it happened in the UK as well but you you know the experience that a Friday night and you think oh, I'm going to have a steak tonight and you you go and you buy a steak and you you're really looking forward to it. Line up a nice red wine, and you you cooked it as best as you can, but it's just not as good as you'd hoped it would be. Can I ask you? Now I'm thinking here after this lovely conversation we've been having. <laughs> You're going to get me to eat meat now, no, aren't you? No, I'm not going to eat meat. There is a there is a 
there is a beauty and an, an affection of the way of the relationship you have with food, its provenance, where it's come from, and all the rest of it. There's a lot of love associated with the memory mm. and the tradition of it. And you speak about the butchers like you do in Scotland. Mm. Do you think, like, Australia <laughs> does have You've got to look at your well. face. I do. Uh, I'm just trying to, trying to play with something here. And I'm just seeing if... Australia has great beef here. I mean, and the beef in Scotland. I wasn't is, saying no, I wasn't no. I know you're not. It off. No, you're not. No, no. <laughs> and I know, and I know that, and I know, I know firsthand that the meat is fantastic in Scotland. But do you think there is just so much memory and beauty in what you experience those initial things growing up that when you compare, when you come here, it doesn't. Oh, it's really hard, and I, hope I know you what you're trying. I know what you're getting at the past. Never, you know, memories of the past. The presence never lifts up, lives up to those memories. You know, and if we could relive those times again, they wouldn't be nearly as beautiful and intense as they are in our memories. Yeah. And the same goes with great meals you've had, great food you've eaten, and the people associated with them at the time. It's commonplace. Um, you know, so I don't. Um, so I don't know. Um, are you talking about the sense of li have, leaving that past behind? No, it's just not. It was just they were so grand and they were so big. Yeah. I mean, just uh, because you, nobody can see this, but your face lights up. Anything every time you go back to a Scottish memory or a family memory, <laughs> yeah. you are just My nobody heart lights needs up. Your, your, and you don't need to light up the stage because your face is doing all the light work. You know. Um, but then I, it's. It, I, I get like that with my own heritage, so experiences. Like we were talking about it last night around the the, the red wine. Um, I Australia is home. I love it. I'm very fortunate to be here. I'm very fortunate that my forefathers brought me here. But when I'm in Cyprus, I am with my people. I drive like them. I eat like them. <laughs> I speak like them and all the rest of it. But it's not my home. It's a, a similar experience I have going to home because I've lived in so many different places, you know, and... I haven't lived in Scotland since I was 11. Still, obviously have still strong emotional connections to it, and that's my heritage. But it does feel funny when you go back to somewhere, doesn't it? Even if you've got, like you have a, a, a maybe an inherited memory of it as your home. Uh, but me, by the way, I was, in, I was born here in Australia. Yeah, yeah. that's it. And for, for me, it seems, it's close to that because it seems like a different world when I lived there. And I was a different person, but you still get that feeling when you go back, don't you? That oh yeah, I'm here. Yeah, this is it. Here's where where's generations of my family lived and ate meat. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was so that turning point. Let's go back to that turning point. It was a very gradual, and all of a sudden, boom. It was. I'm not going to do this anymore. I just um, I just thought I'd give it a go. I knew I'd miss it, but I did. Be, I thought I'd just see how it go. And the first thing that happened was I lost a lot of weight. Um, so there was other factors at the time, but I thought, look, this is a good sign that I should keep this up. And I, without, I don't want to get into that territory where I'm being one of those preachy vegan vegetarian people, but, <laughs> but I, um, I think about how a lot of meat is produced, and I think about the ethical concerns I've got around forests being cleared for cattle. You know, the amount of water it takes, for example, the. And then the obvious ethical concerns about live exports and how how an animals are killed and how they feel when that's happening and how you inherit some of that anguish when you eat the meat. I mean, all of these things are kind of have always been a concern of mine, and I'm no longer part of that. I'm no longer part of that process because I don't. I'm not the consumer anymore, and I think that feels good. And to, to kind of stretch that idea around, there's so many things about the world I would love to change. I would love to change how we deal with climate change. I would love to change how we welcome people, new Australians. I would love to change so many things about the world that break my heart, you know, switching on the news and feeling so helpless. But I've found something that I have changed. Um, the sacrifice is that I don't, authentically go back to my culinary roots when it comes to those steak pies and sausages anymore. And it's funny because I've enjoyed looking into fake meat and all, all that business and I've enjoyed the business of trying to recreate those recipes with something like mushroom. So the steak pie, yeah, you use the same flavorings and you do it with mushrooms and you're, you're part of the way there. 
but you know that it's not the real deal. <laughs> you know. Are you hopeful for the future? You've got to be, haven't you? I mean, if you're not hopeful for the future, what what is there? There's there's so much to be hopeful about. We dwell on negativity a lot. We dwell on what's wrong with the world. We dwell on divisions. Um, but as you get older, I mean, I'm only 45. It's not like I'm well, talking from my deathbed I know, here. but do you remember but... when we were younger, 45? Oh, <laughs> shut up. No, but, <laughs> but um, what you know, I'm not. So I'm not talking with the wisdom of age here. But but that there are so many more good things in the world than there are bad things, and it's easy for me to say that sitting in my garden in the Adelaide Hills in a safe country and. You know, with job security and a, a healthy family, it's all very well for me to say that. But I think I think that it's generally true that there's there's more good in the world than there's bad, and there's a few people who spoil it. One of one of the things about the pandemic that's been funny that struck me straight away is, for once, we've got something awful in the world that hasn't been caused by humans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, because normally it's some you know, some age-old forgotten problem between warring tribes that has continued throughout down the centuries or it's some warmongering, oil-hungry dictator or something like that. But, you know, as terrible as the pandemic has been and continues to be, at least we didn't cause it. <laughs> <laughs> you, there's a lot of love that you have for food. I've mentioned it a hundred times. How much joy is in the music that you bring to your audiences? A lot, and I have to keep reminding myself of that. Um, I'll, there's so much, there's so much love in the music in itself. It, this music is a result of people who are generous. But they have a particular way of seeing the world. They have a particular way of um, translating the business of being alive into notes on a piece of paper that then can be interpreted and created into beauty. There's a great Australian composer called Elena Katz-Chernan who says that music is decorating time, mm. <laughs> which is lovely to slip that in there. But these, peop these people are incredibly generous. They've, they, they have these feelings and this view of the world and they're generous enough to share it and to, to create something beautiful out of it. So there's great joy in that and there's a, it is a great privilege to press go on these pieces of music and I know what life can be like particularly at 7.30 on a Monday morning or whatever <laughs> and for a typical household it's a, it's a crazy time and um, listening to 15 minutes of my show might make your day 5% better and that's a wonderful thing to, to hold on to um, and that's just for general day to day life there's people I know who have listeners who've texted in have gone through terrible life events and who've said to me this music is just the thing that's got me through and there's there's something mysterious about music that that I can't put my finger on and it it's beyond the original intent of the composer but there's something that we get from it that is magical and and unfathomable there's something about the association maybe you have in your mind and culturally with it but also just the physicality of listening to those sounds and how they affect you is 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 crazy i mean i was going to say there's nothing like it in the world but i i think there is and that's the sense of smell and this is bringing us back to food the sense of smell if i smell a guy walks past me in the street and he's wearing an aftershave that my dad used to wear in the 80s ah. like boom you're there and it's like that with music too you're instantly transported into a place that you've maybe remembered or you've never experienced but it's taking you there anyway and it's a great it's a great honor to be able to do that and to be the conduit <laughs> russ let's move on to your third food memory my third food memory right <laughs> this is one that makes my wife rolls her, roll her eyes because she did warn me <laughs> so many of the sentences we share start with when we were on holiday in France um, and she's just like oh god not again the family were Francophiles by the sound of it they were yeah. my parents always were how exotic Francophiles well we're just across the where my parents live now you can literally go for a meal to France well you could before Brexit you could literally <laughs> get go get a four o'clock train in the afternoon be in a restaurant Calais 
have a meal, come back and be in bed at night. So it's as easy as that to get there. But it was a bit more of a deal when we were growing up. We, by the time I was born, my parents were already francophiles. They had um, their honeymoon in Paris. They were in, they had lots of holidays in the southeast of France before I was born. But we had several great holidays in France. They started for me in the early 80s when we went down to the Bordeaux area. And then they continued. It was a hiatus when the early 90s when my parents didn't have any money <laughs> but then but then we started going to France again when I was older and Gran came with us we had a car with seven seats and we just had some absolutely magical times in France just all being together but the food obviously was a huge part of it I mean going to France in those days was such a culinary experience um so I want to talk chiefly about the first proper holiday we had in France was in I think it was 1983 we went to just north of Bordeaux it was a hell of a journey to get there from Scotland <laughs> it's like a full day's drive to the south coast of England then an overnight ferry crossing and then I think it was two days drive through France before the the motorways had been built or anything and we, we were staying in this farmhouse outside a tiny village every all the buildings were Yellowstone and you know it just just like you imagine it surrounded by vineyards red roof tiles etc and i'd never had french bread before and it was just it that was such a revelation i think one day the nearby we walked down some country lanes in the in the blazing heat to go to this place that was an ancient mill that milled the flour and baked bread and the bread had come out of this fiercely hot oven it was literally black on the outside and and soft and chewy and glutinous on the inside it was amazing but the one standout memory for me from that holiday is when we arrived so I, I explained the journey to you and we're two young families we went with our um, friends of the family in um cars that had no air conditioning um, <laughs> traveling for two did anyone smoke in the car no we cool. n- none of my parents none of my parents smoked um traveling for two days across France you know we were just like so grimy and sweaty by the time we got there I think we got to where we were we were staying about six o'clock one evening and it was July and it was hot and um had to maneuver through this village you know we had little British cars but there was one point we had to squeeze between two buildings to get to this farmhouse we were staying at and we were starving we were absolutely starving. We walked into the village and we'd spotted that there was just one place that seemed to serve food. And it was the kind of place where you walk in and there's like a, a football, a table football and a concrete floor and an old guy in a berry in the corner. And and that was it. Somebody in a waistcoat polishing glasses. There was nothing going on. And we turned up, um, four adults, four kids, <laughs> and said, can we have food with you? And they said, oh, Tell you what, come back in half an hour if you don't mind having what we're having. So that's what we did. We came back half an hour later and we went through the back. And I checked this with my mum the other day. It was a garage at the back um, that had been converted into a games room. So there was a pool table there. And they got a big piece of plywood, put it on top of the pool table, covered it in a cloth. Um, and just brought out this amazing food <laughs> and you, anything tastes good if you're hungry and you've had a long journey but this, I remember there being pâtés and terrines fresh bread um, a leg of pork that had come out of the fridge and we could slice up there was crab <laughs> I mean, uh, there must have been a soup as well the parents all got wine and just a local plonk and it was the to this day, I've never had a bad meal in France. And it doesn't matter where you turn up. You, I'm not talking about Paris or not to Bordeaux. You turn up into a, a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere and look for a bar sign, you'll always get food served with pride. And that's what that was. It was just astonishing. This, These incredible array of stuff that they just happened to have in their fridge. And they were apologetic for it. And it was... It was the best, it was one of the best, most memorable meals I've ever had. I can imagine all the chatter around those dishes to people just, you know, hungry, hungry children, hungry adults and, you know, the locals. Yeah, yeah. Sitting all together and enjoying. It was wonderful. 
it just it just was such a wonderful experience. Was there any pudding at the end? I don't remember. But one thing I do remember is the fact that I don't know whether it was that night or another night we went in there, and there was a, there was an awkward conversation. French people much prefer Scottish people to English people. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's the old alliance. It's um it's an old kind of understanding between France and Scotland that continues culturally. So they they were very polite to us, and then they found out that we were Scottish. It must have been that first night, and the the guy gets on the phone, and about an hour later, this old guy turns up on one of those old crunchy French motorbikes, you know, the ones that go along at forty <laughs> kilometers an hour at full whack. And this old guy, and he had been, I think he'd been in Scotland during World War Two as part of the Free French or something like that, and he'd come all that way to meet us. <laughs> Because we were Scots, and I believe—I mean, maybe this is just something I've invented in my head—but I believe he wanted to thank us, you know, that that the Scots been so welcome to him and and everything like that. It was, it was just such an experience. <laughs> this old guy just—he must have come a long way. I'd like to now talk about your social cause. Ah, uh, well, um, it was quite an easy one to think about this because I suffer from mental health issues. I mean. Thank goodness it's nothing that's affected my life onto war, but I have anxiety and depression, and so I wanted to talk about Lifeline um, because it's such an a great service. What triggers your your depression and anxiety? Um, generally, for me, it just comes from nowhere, like the black dog sneaking up on yeah, you. Yeah, it sneaks up on you. You have you feel fine, and then you just find yourself being grumpy and shouty. And for those people who are lucky enough to not experience depression, you don't feel sad. It's not about feeling sad. You don't want to go and cry. It's about not feeling anything. Do you think it's because, I mean, from this interview, I've gotten very much you're a feeler, a lover and a thinker. Do you think it's just, it gets, you just get saturated from all that intake? I think so. And in many ways, that's that. if that's what my personality is like, then I'm happy to... Deal with the downsides. Could it be like a little that mo- those moments of anxiety and depression? Could it be just like that little release valve going? Okay, you know what? We've got it. We've got to deflate here because you've taken on too much. For for me, it it's just when things bubble over, and then and when I do have the opportunity to reflect on what's caused an episode, it's I can usually dissect it into a few different things that happen to you, and you think I'm fine, but it's still there in your subconscious. And then something else happens, and and or maybe it's just one thing that that one thing that's there in your subconscious, you, and it just is there. Maybe you're ruminating on it. Maybe you're not even aware of it, and then it causes a problem. You know, if you're listening to this and this is you, please call Lifeline, and please know that there's a people. Please talk to somebody. Please know that there's always a future. There's always something to look forward to, but do call Lifeline because it's it, things things will get better. Now, my last question, and and this came to me in the middle of all our talking. You've chosen a composer to cook you a meal. Who would it be and why? There's so many factors here, Sarah. So many of my favourite composers, I would not let them anywhere near the kitchen. They probably wouldn't know the way. They'd probably chop their hand off. (laughs) Or they they would start cooking something, maybe switch on the gas and then forget (laughs) about it and go off and do something else (laughs) and the house would go on fire. Your life is a complete... Mm composition of music and food from what I've understood right yeah so let's get a composer who's going to best tell that story on a plate for you who would it be the people I would ask to cook for me would be the ones I know love food and Rossini is the first one that springs to mind so a fabulously successful opera composer retired at 37 lived until his 70s I think spent the rest of the time just eating there's dishes named after him. Tuonadoshrosini's the one that springs to mind. Beef, a beef dish. He was a gourmand. So surely that's a good starting point. If you want somebody to knock up some grub for you, it's got to be somebody <laughs> who loves some food. Yes, I'm sure Rossini would be preferring but, to uh, Well, grub. there you go. He'd be there. He'd need a big, he'd need a big apron. Um, I'm trying to think of like living composers too, but the problem is they might be listening to this, <laughs> and they might say no, no. I mean, Deborah Cheatham's an Australian composer who's just fantastic, and then but writes operas and everything she does is so considered she's a yachty auto woman so a lot of it's to do with being part of the stolen generations but there's such a wisdom to her music and the breadth of her music too and I 
feel that sorry if you're listening to this Deborah, but i feel that you knock up a good dish or two as well i know you enjoy food <laughs> i encourage everyone to if they have the opportunity to listen to one of her early pieces of um work um the white baptist Aberfan. yes that's a good one yeah that's it because she's also gay as well so it's about that combination of expressions and a lot deborah's cooking dinner for everybody that's it deborah so a long get, table get down to the supermarket <laughs> Russ, thank you so much for having me be part of this or being part of this with me in your math lab. Thanks, Sam. Sam, let's go and... No, I was going to say something else. Can we do that again? Because I was going to say, let's go and get a pipe. (laughs) Russ, that was amazing. Thank you. Talking about yourself isn't something I'm used to because I'm usually interviewing other people. Was I too tough? You were good. Oh, good. You were good. That's it for this episode of Plated 3 Food Memories. If you need the number for Lifeline, you can call 13 11 14 or head to their website, lifeline.org.au. Remember, we're never alone. In the next episode of Plated, share the chat with the incredible playwright and journo, Melanie Tate, as she takes me on a hijinks through her food memories from Portugal to the Southern Highlands. Plated Three Food Memories is made in partnership with World Stories, produced and edited by Lauren McWhirter, and music by that great Scott you just heard, Russell Torrance. Make sure you keep an eye on World Stories and Plated Insta accounts to keep up to date with everything Three Food Memories. Just search Plated by Sava, Sava with a double V, and World Stories, W-E-L-D Stories. And we'd love it if you could spread the plated podcast joy. Tell your mates, leave us a review, and follow for more. Bye for now, and ora kali.